it is certainly feeling like spring some days right now and more time at the end of the day to fuss with the flowers. That's what really makes me happy. Welcome to Into the Garden with Leslie. This podcast is sponsored by Dos Amigos Landscaping, Color Blends Bulbs, GreatGardenPlants.com and artist Karen Blair. I'm Leslie Harris and all of our family, my Jeff, our two kids, their spouses and the six grandchildren got away for spring break last week. And because nobody's more than five in two months, there were also a lot of babysitters involved, but it was great. You know, you're at a different stage of life when you really don't care about your tan on vacation and instead you just keep staring at plants whenever you are not playing with a grandchild. One of the ones that I stared at last week, plants, not grandchildren, I stared at all of them, was the bougainvillea. So that's our plant of the week, even though it's not very seasonal, but it's on my mind. And this is my podcast, and I say so. I'll be chatting with Jenny Williams of the Laundry Garden in Northern Wales. And the playlist is about what to do in your garden this week and what to listen to. Hey, I have a special ending to the podcast this week, which is why you can see that it's a bit longer than usual. Historic Garden Week is coming up next month in the Commonwealth of Virginia, and that is a very storied and famous week-long event that will last from April 15th to 22nd this year. After I finish up today's show, you can stick around and hear more about it from Debbie Lewis, who is the current president of the Garden Club of Virginia, which is the organization that gets this big old tour together, and Fran Carden, who is the state chair for the event this year. I know that a couple of you have been listening to my show from the beginning, and when I started Into the Garden with Leslie two years ago, I was busy with a couple of things that are thankfully not getting my attention much right now. One of them was that I was running a small business, a fine gardening business, which I have since sold, and now it's Abigail's Plants. And the second one was that I was getting my garden ready to be part of Historic Garden Week. So that was 2021, and a lot of people still hadn't gotten COVID shots yet, So we only had, and I say only, we only had 600 people coming through the garden that day. As a homeowner, my job was to get the garden looking really spick and span, and I planted a ton of bulbs, and it was beautiful. I felt like I did a pretty good job. Now, two years later, I'm still very involved with Historic Garden Week, but on a different level. What I'm doing this year is I'm chairing the local tour. Again, there are tours all over the state along with my two buddies, Sarah Wilkinson and Claire Mellinger. So the Albemarle Charlottesville part of Historic Garden Week, which takes place April 15th, 16th, and 17th, is what we three are pulling together, and it's a three-day tour. So April 15th is at Morvin, which is that lovely property south of Charlottesville that belongs to the University of Virginia. Tickets for that are purchased at the gate on the day via check or cash for 20 bucks. The second day is April 16th, Sunday, And that's three private homes in the North Garden area. And tickets for that can be bought online. They have to be bought online at virginiagardenweek.org. The third day is at the university. So they're going to open five pavilions and the gardens and Cars Hill, which is the president's home. And we hope that everyone visits also the very beautiful and meaningful memorial to enslaved laborers, which is just between the corner and the lawn, if you know that area. If you haven't seen it, you should because it's really lovely and powerful. There will be two guided tours of the MEL, which is the Memorial to Enslaved Laborers. One's at 11 and one's at 1. Tickets for the April 17th event at the university? Well, there are no tickets because it is free and I hope you come. If you're interested in learning more, just keep listening to the end of this podcast 
But I think that the next podcast, episode 90, I'll go back over a little bit and give you some specific tips about the Albemarle Charlottesville portion of the tour. And now our plant of the week, the Bougainvillea. That's B-O-U-G-A-I-N-V-I-L-L-E-A, native of South America. It's a tropical vine or shrub. The way that I've grown it around here, which is not a tropical environment, is as an annual that you tend to have as a thriller in a container over the course of a summer. Apparently, they can stand a light frost, but they would not survive the winter if you kept them outside, around here anyway, in Virginia. The vines can get 40 feet tall in the tropics, and you can grow them year-round in zones nine or higher. So you see a lot of them in Florida. They're really pretty plants. The reason that I was pretty much staring at them all last week was that they were all over this place where I was, which was Jamaica. Also, I did not realize something that some of you probably already know, and you can snicker about my ignorance, but the flowers of the bougainvillea are actually tiny, tiny white things. What we're looking at in terms of all those bright colors, those are the bracts, B-R-A-C-T-S. The same situation goes on with poinsettias. You probably knew that. The red things that we get because it's Christmas are not flowers at all. And the flowers are fairly insignificant things in the middle. Ditto for the dogwood. They have white or pink bracts, but the flowers are tiny, kind of yellowish green things that we don't really notice. The bracts on bougainvilleas are the show-offs. Well, on all these plants, they're the show-offs. They're saying, look at me, I am so big and beautiful, but the actual flowers are doing the biological work very low-key and tiny. The flowers on these plants are like Bernie Taupin and the bracts are Elton John. Are you following me? Okay. So while Bougainvillea has flowers that are simple and tiny and white, the bracts are these bigger, blousy, papery affairs about an inch across and they come in amazingly vibrant colors, pink, magenta, purple, red, orange, white, or yellow. The Bougainvillea was named by a French botanist named Commerson and he named it for a French naval admiral named Louis-Antoine de Bougainville, these two guys were exploring the world together in the late 18th century. But wait, they were not the only ones on that expedition. Here's some Wikipedia gossip for you. And I read, it is possible that the first European to observe these plants, Bougainvilleas, was Jean Barre, Commerson's lover and assistant, who was an expert in botany. Because she was not allowed on ship as a woman, she disguised herself as a man in order to make the journey and thus become the first woman to circumnavigate the globe. That's pretty cool. Bougainvilleas want full-on sun, and they have pretty serious thorns, just so you know. I've not grown too many myself. When I want to go for that tropical look, I usually choose a diplodenia, which is smaller, or a mandevilla, which gives you really good growth as a vine just in one summer. I inherited a topiary bougainvillea from a client of mine years ago. By the time winter rolled around, it was a very scraggly-looking thing indeed, and although I did my best, the death of that plant turned out to be a happy release to me. You know that feeling? It's like, hey, you know, we're done here and you can now feed my compost pile. When I was in Jamaica, bougainvilleas were used as vines to great advantage over some arbors, but they were also planted in the ground, a lot of them. And in most of those cases, and I don't know how well they were cared for, but they appeared to be somewhat misshapen and very woody azaleas from a distance. I think I prefer the vine myself. So my plants of the week have been a steady parade of spring interest bulbs over the last few episodes. We interrupt our regular programming with the bougainvillea, but I think next time I'll go back to something that's getting my attention right here in Virginia, and I bet you it's going to be the Virginia bluebell because, boy, are they making me happy. Anyway, the bougainvillea has those bright colors, which really got my attention. And speaking of bright colors, 
My friend Karen Blair is a Charlottesville-based painter whose work is exuberant, abstract, and bold with colors and shapes. She would paint a really mean bougainvillea, I bet. She takes commissions, and one of you listeners out there has been smart enough to send her photos of your garden that you wanted her to get onto one of her large canvases, and she did. And y'all can go to the show notes on lhgardens.com to see some examples and links to her work. You would love it. Coming up, we'll talk with Jenny Williams of The Laundry Garden. But don't be thinking we're washing any clothes. Welcome back to Into the Garden with Leslie. And we are not just with Leslie, we are with Jenny. Jenny Williams of The Laundry Garden is somebody that I've been looking at on Instagram. And it's one of those accounts, you know, some of them make you feel just a tiny bit jealous. This one does. And yet you can, (laughs) she's laughing. It does because it's so beautiful and and yet it's it's like this really fun garden that you want to go to and you can for a minute on your screen and it just makes you so happy and it's it's called the laundry garden. Jenny, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Hello. Thank you for inviting me, Leslie. It's a pleasure to be here. Good, good. So tell us about where you garden. You're in Wales and, and tell us about a little bit of the history of how you got to where you are in this garden. Well, this garden has actually been in my husband, Tom's family for, I think he's probably the fourth generation. Oh my. Yeah. So our house, the laundry, many people ask why it's called the laundry. Well, it's called that because it used to be the old laundry dairy to the main hall where his family used to live. So the servants' quarters would have been upstairs and they would have made milk and the dairy and done all the laundry in the downstairs quarters of, of our home. And the drying area would have been one of our gardens to the front or the back. We're not 100% sure. And obviously the walled garden would have been where they grew all the, you know, the food and vegetables and flowers for the house and the family. Oh, I bet it's beautiful. Does the main house still exist? The main house does still exist. It's now a nursing home. So it was sold I think it was sold sometime uh, in the 60s. I think Tom remembers it as a child very, very briefly when he lived there with his parents um, until they sold it. And then it became a hotel and then onto a nursing home. So, yes, we do look out. I can actually see the nursing home out of my window now. I mean, I'm sure it's still a beautiful building and I'm sure there's some lovely souls inside of it who former gardeners, I'm sure. Oh, yes. Yes, I'm sure. Yes. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. And so when did you all start? When did you and Tom start gardening there? About 2010, I think it was. But because it's a listed property, we had to wait for something called planning permission, where where you're told on how to format certain areas of the house in certain styles. So while we were waiting for that to happen, we thought, well, we'll get started with the garden. Why not? Whilst we're waiting for these things to process. So we sat down and obviously the house at the time was empty. No one was living in here. And we stood inside the house with a piece of paper and looked out of the window where we knew we wanted to have the kitchen. And we just started sketching and dreaming and deciding on how we wanted to create our dream garden. We never touched the walled garden until several years later oh. because the, the walled garden is an acre in size, which oh, that's daunting. is extremely <laughs> daunting. So we thought, well, we'll start with the smaller areas first and get those all looking nice and tidy for when we move in once we'd renovated the house. Then 
once we'd moved in and settled in and the garden immediate to our house started to mature nicely, we then invited, and I don't know whether you do this in America, in the UK, we, we do something called the National Garden Scheme, which is where um, a, a group of charities are all as one and people open up their gardens to support these charities and raise money. I've heard about it and I don't think we have anything exactly like it. We have some various groups. And for instance, my garden's been open to um, a local group in Charlottesville or a bigger group in Virginia. And the money generally does go to, yeah, something wonderful. But yours is very organized. I've heard of it. And the yellow book is like, that's that's a really great thing to have as a tourist. You can go and take advantage of private gardens. Yeah, absolutely. And it was always a bit of a dream, a bit of a pipe dream of mine to be able to have a garden that was good enough to open up for this this big national garden scheme and we'd finished you know the house garden and we'd done a lot of planting and felt quite satisfied with what we'd done and we called in the ladies to come and do a recce of the garden to see if we qualified were you nervous very very nervous yes (laughs) (laughs) and they came with their clipboards and came and had a walk around and have you have to provide I think it's something like 20 minutes worth of interest in your garden which we felt we we just about had anyway they looked around and then said and can we have a look inside the walled garden and Tom and I looked at each other and said well there's nothing in there it's just grass and empty and they said oh no everybody's going to want to look inside the walled garden Oh, our hearts sank and we thought we've not done anything in there because it's just a whole new it's a whole new playground and exciting. But like you said, it's daunting at the same time. We just our heads weren't ready to move into that big space just yet. And in a way, just from speaking to those ladies and having them saying that to us galvanized us to bite the bullet and just go for it. And we did. That's when we started. So around about 2013, 2014. Oh, my goodness. So it's new, really. It is. Yes. Oh, gosh, yes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, the whole of our garden entirely, including the house garden, is only about 15 years old. That's a new garden, right? Yes. You know, it's it's not, but it is. Uh, Who was I talking to? Have you ever heard of that charming woman who has a beautiful topiary garden down in Kent and um, her name is Charlotte Molesworth. She gardens with her husband, Donald. I think they're both in their late eighties or nineties. Oh, wow. I know I was um, down. I had the very good luck of going to a symposium last summer for a week at Great Dixter. We went on a field trip to this nearby garden and um, Charlotte Molesworth, who I want to get on the show because she has the most amazing way of talking. You're just sort of mesmerized by everything that she says, both with her accent and her tone. And then again, all the gardening information. Anyway, she was talking to a friend of mine and said, oh, no, the first 20 years, it's still new. And the next 20 years, you sort of get it. And then in the next 20 years after that. <laughs> she's, she's right. She's definitely right. Then you start reforming it and getting back to the bits that you really liked before because it's not gotten away from you because you're a gardener, but it, you've got to edit it, you know. So anyway, you've got a long road. Absolutely. I love that mindset. What she what you've just said, what she said to you, it's true. It's definitely true. Even though we're in our 15th around about, let's say 15 years, I'm I'm still going around certain parts of the garden doing things now, even thinking, right, next year I'll do it this way. And then something else will happen the following year. And I'll think, okay, the following year, 
I'll do it this way. I've got three sons and they all laugh at me. And I say, this garden is my fourth child. <laughs> well, it, it is in a way because I'm nurturing it. And now they're, they're all sort of growing up and not around as much. I find that the garden is sort of my next level, the next thing that I can look after. Exactly. And raise as my own. And it's never going to go anywhere. And it's never going to leave me. <laughs> like they have and the, the fun of it is the change and doing it better and then sometimes circling back and saying oh wait I like that from a few years ago and grabbing that again that's the fun of it right absolutely yes yes all right so the ladies knocked on the door and said mm -mm -mm, you gotta open people want to go behind this beautiful blue door hello and so then how fast was that next step because you've got it now I mean the beginnings of it right yeah so this was in this was around about 2013 when they came to visit. So they sort of visited us with a view of us opening the following year to put in their diary. So Tom and I were in a little bit of a, a tiz at that moment when they said this to us and we thought, well, we'll have to do something. And how are we going to go about this? And we sat down and we tried to pull up archive plans of the garden from years ago and we couldn't really find anything at all. There doesn't seem to be, I mean, we we probably could look a lot harder, but we just pulled up some old, some very old ordnance survey maps, which did show vague pathways within the walls. And basically the pathways married up to the doorways, which was very helpful. And we just thought, okay, well, we'll, we'll reinstate some pathways to start with. So at least people have something to walk on. And we made that the first thing to do. And interestingly, when Tom got the digger out and started chipping away to form a path, up came these old slate edges that would have been original slate edges from years ago. Oh. It's like digging up treasure. So in these slate edges went on some of these big borders. And so we had a path. So by the time we opened the following year, we had some pathways, some empty borders, and a big central area which we'd seeded and created a lawn. And that was about it, really. And it gave people something to see and, and hopefully get excited about. And it's interesting, we've opened it since then, obviously, and people are coming back that came on that first day that we opened, and they're absolutely blown away by how much it's grown, how tall the yew hedges are, and the borders are now filled with flowers and more projects in the pipeline and so on. So it's really nice, and it makes us realise how far we've come in a relatively short space of time. Do you think of Instagram as sort of your gardening log or diary, or do you keep track of what you've done or what you want to do in a different way also? I I think of, I flip back through Instagram. I'm like, oh, that combination is good. Let's do that again. Do you use it or do you, how do you keep track of what you want to do? How do we keep track? Well, I'm forever writing on scraps of pieces of paper and then sticking them in a folder somewhere and then forgetting about them. And it's interesting because you can, you can I think once you write something down, it helps you to remember it. And we're the sort of type of people that we do like to plan. So, you know, oh, well, let's do that over there and... But I think this garden has all been created by feeling. So as we take our little walks around the garden, we'll sort of imagine how it could be in the future mm -hmm. and what we could do to it. And then we'll just sketch it on a piece of paper and, and dream. And then suddenly it sort of morphs into something, a reality that we can try and implement ourselves. And we do pour over magazines. I think it's always been books and magazines that have heavily influenced us. 
So I don't know if you've heard of Arnie Maynard. Uh, I think so. He's a garden designer and we went to stay at his garden in Monmouthshire a few years ago. And it's places when you go and visit somewhere and it inspires you to put certain elements of that garden in your own garden. You sort of think, oh, I could do that here and we could put a little bit of that there and a little bit of that here. And then suddenly you formulated something quite magical that that you've put your own stamp on as well. Yeah, so every corner of the garden has a little story to tell if we've put something there or something's happened or or the time it happened. And then suddenly the garden, you know, has a real rhythm to it because, you know, you've you've put everything to, into it and you've put your ideas and you've borrowed a few other ideas from other gardens that you've been to or you've seen in books or on Instagram. I think our garden started out pre-Instagram, I would say. I don't think I really got heavily into Instagram until probably I'd say about 2018 but prior to that it was more trying to visit other gardens and looking through books and magazines where we gained all our inspiration from. Everybody who's listening please if you don't follow the laundry garden on Instagram you should because it is a feel-good thing it it is beautiful. Thank you. So gardening with somebody else I am a lone gardener I mean I I love to um, share ideas and plants with friends but my husband is a golfer and his contribution is to mow the lawn. Um, and so this is a great thing for me because there's no conversation needed and I have autonomy. What's it like to work with Tom and how do you come together on ideas? Is it easy? It's amazing. Yeah. It's it's like, I can't quite put my finger on it, but we are very in tune with anything and everything we talk about. I'm, I'm quite a big dreamer and I will come up with lots of plans and ideas and then Tom will sit me down and bring the reality to it and say, because he's more of the structure person, Tom. He He's very good at sort of training trees and, you know, generally keeping everywhere really tidy, but he will build the structures. He'll make the pathways. He will do all the sort of the foundations, all the real edge to it whereas I will paint the picture and I will soften it all with the planting and the flowers and and anything else and then we sort of we just very much our minds come together so easily on everything and we we sort of we must have similar likes and similar desires on how we can visualize the garden and somehow it works I think you're very lucky I'm extremely lucky and I hear a lot of people say oh no it's it's just me or or my husband we don't we clash or he likes this and I like that and it never works but for some I don't know for some reason it it does here it's just got a great feel about it when when we sit and we talk I'm probably the more enthusiastic one of the two of us okay I get more excited than he does And he sort of calms me down a little bit and brings me back to reality. And, you know, I can get all these big ideas and these big plans. And then he will squish them a little bit and say, right, let's start here. (laughs) He grounds me a little bit more, which is not not such a bad thing. But at the same time, he will humor me and say, well, yes, we can do it this way or we can do it that way. How about this? And then we sort of formulate a bit of a plan and then execute it and step back and watch it grow and enjoy it that's fantastic and and when I say I garden alone I'm not feeling sorry for myself I'm quite happy (laughs) actually (laughs) but but I do think it's wonderful to have found a soulmate who can really you know meld those two 
ways of thinking about gardening and you know you probably don't want to lay down stone paths and, and he will and you're a very lucky girl so that's great what about the boys are they interested or do they participate no <laughs> no in a word they don't mind doing a little bit of mowing and helping out here and there if they really have to or, or we pay them we bribe them sometimes uh, my eldest son has just bought a house with his fiance oh, and I, I took him around the garden and I said right I'm really excited you've got a garden I can, how about I can split some of this and I can give you some from that and we can create an instant garden for you and his words were just no mum just no I'm very happy with lawn and you know I think the children look at the garden and see it as work as too much because they see us in it so much and how much of our lives have been dedicated to it, which we love. We don't begrudge any of it. We feel privileged to be able to have so much space around us and enjoy it. We don't yearn to hop on a plane anywhere or go do anything, or we're very content with what we have here. And because we've created all of it ourselves, we don't want to miss out on anything. You know, that's going to flower next week or that's going to come up. Well, I don't want to be away when that happens. <laughs> <laughs> no chance so the boys kind of see that and I think being teenagers they don't want it as a noose around their necks yeah and I understand that but I'm hoping and so many people sort of say well wait till they've got their own place or wait till they're older and that would be that would be what I was going to say next mine are in their 30s now and one of them our son doesn't he just doesn't have time um but and the, you know, we'll we'll choose a little spot or even just a little container and I'll take his kids and we'll do it up and he'll help me. He'll say, OK, you know what you planted, what do I do now? And just little tiny things. And he you know, he'll make the time for that daughter, on the other hand, is really into it. And in some ways already better than me at bringing seeds along. And so you never know. But this nothing like this was happening even in their 20s. So just be patient. Wait, wait for the garden to grow. Hopefully. Fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> So back to the inspirations that you get, could I ask um, if you're able to name a few of your favorite gardening magazines, blogs, or feeds that you look at that you're like, oh yeah, I like that. Well, the magazine Gardens Illustrated and the English Garden, which our garden has been featured in, both of them. Both of them? Oh, wonderful. <laughs> Just to say that, sorry. <laughs> Those are the only two that I get from England. They're like, oh, candy. <laughs> They are very, very nice. They are amazing. And the photography in the gardens that all they show off are wonderful. So I feel quite lucky to have been featured in those two magazines. So, yeah, it's really, really good. Uh, books wise, um, I do love Arabella Lennox Boyd. OK, yeah. She's a very big inspiration to me. And I have one of her books, uh, which is called Designing Gardens. It's an incredible book. If you love garden design and you love structure and ideas, she's designed some incredible gardens that you, uh, they're completely drool worthy, I think. <laughs> I think she's just got a real eye for design and real classical style gardens, which I love. Um, so she's a definite must. Tom, we both like Arnie Maynard, so he's he's very, very good and again, quite classical style gardening, uh, formal, but with a nice softness to around the edges. So lots of clipped things and train trees and things like that. Oh, so that reminds me, we had talked um, before we started recording, we brought up two mutual Instagram friends because it sounds like I've, I've never met either of them in person, but um, 
Nanny knew Julie Hart from Launceston, Tasmania, who maybe we'll talk about in a minute. But what you're describing to me sounds like Linda, Linda Vodder's garden, although she's moving now, but just that really tight grip clip and then wonderful things frothing out from the inside of it. Is that the sort of thing you like? Yes, it is. I do like a, a garden that has good bones to it. Structure is important. Yeah, whether that is in the actual hard landscaping or just the tree planting, I think as long as it has really good bone structure, then you can you can play around with it to your heart's content. Exactly like Linda yes. did with her garden. You know, she could she could keep swapping and changing it up, but because she had that beautiful layout already there, it almost made it easier for her in a way. So she could you know she could try different things or move pots in different places or try new planting. I've got her book as well. It's a really... Isn't it good? Yeah, it is a good book, actually. She's quite relatable, Linda, isn't she? I find her easygoing. When I got her on the show, I was all set to be jealous of her, like I do, I feel when I'm looking at her Instagram. I'm like, oh, man, she's so pretty. She is the nicest person, and she's totally relatable because she she was almost apologizing for the book. Like, I'm I'm not a horticulturist. I, I'm having a little imposter syndrome here. But she knows her stuff, and gardening is experience. I know from reading up on you a bit, you're not formally trained either, are you? I am very minimally trained, very minimally. Tell me about you and Tom. I have absolutely no training at all. It's all come from planting up my own spaces. And I think the more you plant up in your own space, the more you learn from that. And it all started in my 20s when I got my first house. And I was on maternity leave with my first son. And I found myself just devouring all gardens. Now, my eldest son was a May baby. And May, we all know how abundant May is in everybody's gardens. And I think because I had to stop and breastfeed and nurse my son, it was it was kind of like, oh, oh that's, that's in blossom. What tree is that? I must find out what tree that is. Oh, that's a pretty flower. What flower is that? And suddenly this hunger and desire to know what was growing and flourishing around me got stronger and stronger. And I ended up going to WI markets. I ended up going to the greengrocers and buying lots of plants. And, and just by gardening in your own garden, you learn so much quicker, I think. And then I also decided that I wanted to know a bit more about how to plan a garden. I felt that it's all very well having all these plants everywhere and creating beds and borders, but it was also knowing how to get it right and get a bit of a better understanding about it. I mean, everyone gardens in their own way and everyone gardens has their own style, but I just wanted to understand that a bit better. So I just went on a very quick, I think it was a six week course on start garden design and it was a free it was just a free course that was going and I thought well I've got some time to do this and off I went and and learned a little bit more it opened up my eyes a lot more on how to structure a garden and do it a bit better than what you would if you didn't know what you were doing and it just helped a lot how much did the landscape there at the laundry garden I mean you have the walled garden you're not going to move those walls you've taken advantage but that's a flat space that you can do once you found the guidance of the stone paths and leading to the doors that helped you. So that's pretty clear, but let's go outside the garden. Did you, did you pay attention to the nature that was already there? I don't know, hillsides or large trees and sort of work around that, or did you just impose your will? How, how did that go? A little bit of both. 
on the outside of the wall garden, yes, there's lots of trees that have been growing over the years and you sort of let nature take over there. And then you can implement a few extras, like we've planted a bit of a spring garden where we've we've put hellebores in. And I mean, it has natural growing cow parsley that comes up and the bluebells and the snowdrops and all of those things that were already there anyway. And we've just added a few extra bits and pieces to just come up now, sort of that we've got that in-between stage at the moment where the snowdrops are going over and all the daffodils and hellebores are coming up. So you just add a bit more to that. But the wall garden was a totally different beast I would say and in a way when you build walls you're shutting out what's on the external side of it and it's it's like a giant playground where you can just do what you want and run around and let your mind go crazy and you can you can have natural areas you can have contrived areas you can have structured areas and it's sort of a case of trying to think where do I start with all of this so I started by going to other big stately home gardens to try and understand how they did it and how that worked where they had massive big herbaceous borders because I drew blanks when I looked at an 11 by 14 foot border that was as big as someone's back garden and I thought how am I going to do this so I would again look through books and go to big gardens where they'd done the same sort of thing and and build an idea in my head on how I could do that here and then once you've done one big border, you can then start to be a little bit more adventurous the next border you do and then the other border you do. And then you start to find your own way a little bit of rather than being a little bit copying what other people are doing. You sort of you find your feet a bit more when you're you're doing more and more spaces within within a walled space. It's totally different to gardening in a smaller garden, for sure. You really do have to think big, big, big. Big and nothing, except for that wall and the paths, telling you where to go or what to do. I have a rolling yard myself. It's almost an acre, but there's a stream and massive trees and and various levels. So it was just like, well, this has got to go there. So some decisions were made for me. You know what I mean? That would be very interesting to say, I am in charge of this land. It, It is flat. The walled garden is flat, correct? Totally flat. Yes. It's amazing. I mean, we could put a cricket pitch in or... We've got, well, we've got a very big lawn. Tom wanted a big, big lawn in the centre of it so that we could possibly have functions. So if our, you know, big parties for our boys when they hit their big 21 or when they get married or things like that. So it's it's useful to have a big open space. Sure. And the dogs, I'm sure, love it. And the, oh, the dogs absolutely love it. There's the odd little hole here and there where they've dug holes in the lawn, which hopefully you can't see, but that's fine. <laughs> but the pathways... And the hedging do slightly dictate how it's going to be. So it does formalise it a little bit. But then it's up to me to decide whether I want to keep that very formal or I want to soften it with something else. But also it's really good because you've got long runs of pathways. And I try and use planting or trees to slow the eye down. Yes. Or to take the eye down as well. So there's lots of slowing down and leading you down. And you start to understand that when you garden in a big space on how to position things so that your eye can go over there. So we've positioned a bench. So I don't know if you've seen in one of my pictures, there's uh, along the west wall, there's a, a beautiful area where there's four big pillars and a bench. Yes, I think I've noticed that. So we decided to put that there because it needed a breaking point along that long run of borders. And it works. And the pillars 
the history behind those pillars is that they used to form the porch to the main hall. Oh. And Tom's grandfather took the pillars down to bring more light into the hallway. And these great big stone pillars were cast to one side oh. and sat around for, for 50 years plus. And so when we got to this section of the garden, we thought, how can we make this look more interesting? How can we really make it a sort of a bit of a grand stopping point where you can just sit and be? And Tom said, oh, I've got four pillars. Let's put the pillars there. And the capitals were sitting up at his brother's house. <laughs> and we had some leftover slabs from the terrace we put at the front of the house. And then we'd created a space from from things we already had. It was it was just like that, that light bulb moment where you think, oh, of course. Yes. Yeah. And this is sort of how the whole garden has been. It's kind of where we've stopped and thought, now, what do we have that we could reuse? Or how can we make this more interesting? And what, what are we seeing on our travels that we can implement here? And then suddenly one of us will say something and then oh, we've got ourselves a, a new section. A new, a new vignette. This is great information for people who might be listening and might be having to like, well, how do I, you know, how do I improve my garden? How do I fill a space that I feel is looking blank? So that's fantastic advice on items. The plants, that's a lot of expense if you're going to, did you propagate, buy, seed, borrow? How did you fill, how'd you get most of your plants? Well, there's a very good nursery about two hours drive from here who you can buy bulk from them. Ah. So for the hedging and for any trees or shrubs, so your real backbone planting we went to them and we bought that in yes because we knew we needed to really get some meatiness into the garden early on and then after that we're very lucky actually we had a lot of plants already that we would split and divide and split and divide I think all gardeners have a collection of plants that get split over and over and over and we'll, we'll move that over there because it does well here you you have your stalwarts that that just do well regardless and we've got a bulk of those here you know your your sedums your persicaries your alcamillamollis your napitas and those type of plants that you know you can just dig up and move somewhere else so they were very good as as the fillers yes in the planting scheme and luckily tom's mother is a plants woman and she's got an incredible garden i do look up to her very very much so she's just incredible their garden is exquisite and so I've been given plants by her. Nice. So you can imagine all of her friends are gardeners. They've been giving us plants as well. And and that's sort of how it goes, isn't it? I think when you're in that gardening field of people, you all give each other things and you all help each other out or give each other advice. Or I think that's the joy of gardening. That's the whole wonderfulness of it. We're not propagators. We're not seed sowers. We don't have the time or the brain space to be doing all of that because we have so much going on here already. To be nurturing something from seed to the ground is something, for some reason, we just don't have the time. It's not in our psyche. And I think it's taken me, it's taken me quite a few years to stop beating myself up about that. Oh, I would never beat my, myself up about that. However, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of that coming later on your journey. It could. Absolutely, yes. And we don't have a greenhouse either. Yeah. So it does actually make things a little bit more difficult if you want to bring things on and make things happen. But yes, you never know. In due course, we might get ourselves a nice greenhouse and, and grow and propagate. And maybe when Tom retires and he's here a lot more and 
and I stop hairdressing and we can just sort of focus more on things maybe that we haven't done that we might want to do. So we'll, we'll see. So you all have jobs and yet where you live is a retreat. It's, it's, it's not really a hotel, is it? But people stay with you? Is it a bed and breakfast sort of thing? Well, about five years ago, we started up a bed and breakfast in our house. Whenever we had family and friends to stay, they kept on saying, your guest bedroom would make a great bed and breakfast. You should do it. You should do it. So one day we decided we'd, we'd have a go. And we actually quite enjoyed it, meeting people and giving them breakfast and showing them around the garden. And it turned into something really quite enjoyable. And we thought, oh, well, we've got amazing views across the Cluidian Hill Range. Why don't we put two more accommodations to embrace that amazing sunrise and the hill line? And... So we decided to put in two self-catering roundhouse timber-framed accommodations on the edge of our property, looking out onto a spectacular view. So they've been up for about three years now. And there are they constantly occupied? I mean, who would not want to be there? Or is it does it come and go with the seasons? It does come and go with the seasons, I think. But hopefully, because we're, we've only been going for about three years and we're not with any big booking agencies, we've, we've just built our own website and obviously, because I've been doing lots of Instagram, I think a lot of people have enjoyed the Instagram and thought, oh, I'd really like to stay there. And then suddenly realised, oh, I can stay there. Let's book. You can stay there. <laughs> That's wonderful. And we say to everybody that do book and stay here, our garden's your garden while you're here. Just enjoy it. I think all gardeners, I don't think I know a gardener who has, has said they don't, all gardeners love to share their gardens with other people. We know we're, we do like to show it off because we've worked so hard in it. Why not? Oh, absolutely. I have a few followers every once in a while, they'll come to this town and they'll, you know, they'll hint it. Oh, I'm visiting so-and-so. Um, I think I just got one yesterday. Do you have any recommendations for restaurants? I'm like, come see my garden, forget the food. <laughs> Speaking of, I will recommend restaurants, but um, no, I, I'm, I'm hopeful that, that the hint was I'd love to see your garden. If they see me gardening on Instagram, maybe they do. And I'd love to meet them. It's always a pleasure. Uh, speaking of food, do you all do veg and do you feed yourselves uh, from the garden? We don't. And that is possibly something, again, when when we're both retired, that we would dive into and, and have a go up. But we've we've dabbled, but we do have lots of squirrels mm. that can be a little bit of a pest. We grew some potatoes and some strawberries and very lightweight things, really, and then decided to give it up because actually vegetable growing is very labor intensive. Yes. And I think, well, we've got enough garden to maintain already. And then to do vegetables on top of that is an added thing, which I think we'd need to dedicate more time to as well. So at the moment, we don't, but you never know. We might do. You never know. You know, back to my personal experience, I'm very light on the veg also, usually grow a couple of tomatoes, but now I'm going strong on the propagation. And so I can see myself this season saying, hey, I'm all about the cuttings and the seedlings. We're not doing tomatoes this year. I'll go shopping. So you can only do so much. Do you all have some help that pitch in besides reticent uh, teenage boys? <laughs> well, uh, over a year ago, I we decided that we'll, you know, a little bit more paid help is going to be necessary. And we have had people over the years sort of dip in and out and help with big projects on planting. Yeah. So I did have a girl help me for a good year and then she left. And then I've got this chap with me now and he's been with me for over a year and he comes once a week and we work in the garden. And, you know, it's amazing. Two pairs of hands and what work you can get done is, is amazing. So 
I mean, I'd love to have him here a bit more, but I think once Tom retires and the two of us are home more, I think just having Rowan here once a week and us in the garden should do it, hopefully. For a while, until <laughs> until some bat goes out or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And there's always something, right? Talk about favorite tools, because you're a real hands-on gardener. So what's what's always, do you, do you carry something on your hip always? What's within reach? What are your, what are your go-to tools? My two or maybe three, uh, my Felco sectors go everywhere with me, love them. And I have two pieces of tools. One is a long handled fork and the other one is a hand rake. Oh. They go everywhere with me in the garden. Those, those two little tools, they're amazing. And the handrake is for the tidy look to just get those leaves out of the way or are they some other reason? Yeah, a handrake is amazing because, you know, when you've pruned something or you've cut something back, there's always little bits of mess around and you just quickly handrake it up and then you've got a nice little pile and then away it goes and it's all, all done. So if you've got a big shrub and it's quite low down, you just put your hand underneath the handrake and you can just rake things up quite easily. You don't have to climb underneath anything. It's amazing. Yes. Do you all compost the debris? Yes, we do. That's easy to do. Like, okay, just put it in a pile and it's great habitat and it's great for the soil. But then the hard part is going to get it and use it. How, how, what's your system? This is a system that we need to work a bit harder on. This is probably something that I would say we're going to factor into maybe one of our big projects later on is to build some proper big, big compost space so that we turn it regular and we put the right amount of things on it to get it nice and hot. That is something that we'd like to work towards doing one day. But at the moment, <laughs> we're a little bit lazy. We literally weed everything and put everything into one pile. Some people are really methodical and they separate their perennial weeds and they separate their disease things. And we don't because time is of the essence for us. And there's only so many hours in the day you can spend gardening. It all goes on. This pile is quite high and Tom's got a machine and he does turn it sometimes oh good so we do we do do that and then all of that gets spread around the around the woodland area because you know there are perennial weeds in there and there are lots of bits and pieces so we would never put it on the nice beds and borders in the house garden or the wall garden okay but it would be really nice one day to set up a proper system that works efficiently yes that we can put everything on it and turn it and make it work better but until then, I'm with you. I'm very, I just put it on and I take it off and I don't worry about the weed seeds because my house is not always on display. Question for you though, is, is your garden always on display or can you have some sort of more feral seasons where you're like, uh, this doesn't look great, but I'll leave these clippings because they're going to feed the soil in place and nobody's coming for a while. Does that work or is somebody always coming and it has to be tidy? We're not a garden that's open to the public, which is great. And I'd probably say in the last couple of years, and um, quite recently, really, I think, well, probably, no, let's say in the past three years, since we've had our accommodation, we've been a lot more tuned into trying to keep the garden looking a bit tidier for our guests. Right. We used to be very untidy gardeners, so we'd leave wheelbarrows here and there, leave buckets of things here and there, you know, and, and we'd tell each other off saying, well, you've left that over there and you haven't moved that in a, in a couple of weeks. Can you get that sorted? Put away your toys. Put away your toys. I know, I know. And we've had to be much more aware and mindful to try and keep everyone looking as tidy as possible. And that discipline has been very good, actually, to 
because so many people go, oh, your garden's so tidy. Well, that's because we've had to try and make sure we've looked after it all the time. Yes. As often as possible. And we had a group of gardeners from Italy come and look around our garden a couple of weeks ago. And I was having a complete panic attack because we've never shown anyone our garden that early on in the season. And they were wonderful. They were the nicest bunch of people. They had a translator and they were they were so kind and complimentary and, and you know there was there were still a few sections of the garden where I, I just had to say I'm really sorry I couldn't get to that bit and you know to me it looked a bit a bit untidy but maybe to someone else it maybe they were quite accepting of it so so yes we do consciously try and keep it as neat and as tidy as, as we can for the visitors yeah, yeah. that's a, it's a very freeing thing you know as we talked about we, things come and go and I'm on a journey to, I was a professional gardener for seven years where it was all about the tidy in clients' yards and all about the tidy in my front yard where people could see it. But I am getting more and more feral, more and more just chop and drop and like habitat and, and building soil. And it it looks a little odd. <laughs> but but I'm but I'm like getting there slowly and um, I still have my bones in my structure and my, you know, probably fussing too much. But it's interesting because I've got a uh, higher priority for me right now is sustainability. And I feel like I'm trying to meld those two things, Absolutely. you know, with compost and habitat and all that sort of thing. So I think that what you're doing for composting, even though, you know, you have dreams to do it different or better, as long as everything's going into a pile, you are immediately providing habitat and feeding the soil in that environment. So good on you. Absolutely. And also Tom's built some great looking log piles so if we've had a big windstorm and we've had lots of lots of twigs and branches fall down we'll break them up and we'll make piles of them so that little creatures can live in those little piles of you know leftover bits of old wood and it's great it's it's nice that we can try and give that back for the creatures buzzing around the whole area we have got an abundance of birds here we've got lots of beautiful birds and the, the sound of the birds as we're coming into spring the mornings and the evenings are almost deafening with the sound of birds here it's amazing oh i bet it's beautiful and toads frogs hedgehogs any luck on hedgehogs about oh gosh about a year or two ago i found a hedgehog <gasps> in the walled garden and i was almost in tears i was so excited to see this hedgehog <laughs> and and I you know I, I tried to sort of make a bit of a place for it and some food for it and it disappeared uh, it decided it didn't want to be seen or heard but we know we've got them they are around they're probably more on the outside good I'm sure we've got quite a few who live in the woodland area probably even underneath the, the piles of wood that we've created that would make ideal hedgehog homes yeah building that kind of habitat in the places where you can um are you familiar with the work of Marion Boswell Yes, I love her style and I'd love to implement that in sections of our garden. Tom likes to have clean cut mown lawns and I'm trying to persuade him to let the orchard go feral. Yeah. And last year he refrained and I said, please don't go in there, just leave it. And he's going, but the dandelions and the weeds and I go, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just leave it. I think it looks beautiful and let nature do its thing in there and let it go wild and it, and we, we lost the hens. The hens just disappeared. We've got some hens in there as well. And you couldn't see them because it was so wild in there. But they must have loved it. Sure. I'm convinced by doing that, we had less of an aphid problem. Oh. 
Interesting. Yes, I think because when you let a section of your garden go a little bit wilder, you're encouraging different species and the insect population grows. So you have more predators that feast on any other things that would feast on your pretty flowers that you don't want. So I did find on my dahlias last year, there were far less aphids on them than there have been on previous years. And I had lots more ladybirds because ladybirds obviously eat Eat the aphids. aphids. And it it was wonderful. And I I saw lots of ladybird larvae and lots of more insects around than ever before. It was amazing. And isn't that fun? Yeah. And I honestly believe by letting a section, a portion of the wall garden go completely wild, it, it just brought more wildlife in for sure. It was great. And can you look back at yourself, at, at your 25-year-old self or whatever, when you're just, you know, you're just beginning with this journey, which is exactly what I did. Son got born. I I was not working. And, it, you know, the dinner was made. The bills were paid. I'm like, what's a garden? I'll go out and dig in the dirt. And it was all about formal and tidy and structure. And, and I would never have considered that I would be interested in something like a scenario that you just laid out, like, you know, habitat or these bugs and, you know, more of these and fewer of those and noticing that stuff. That wasn't part of my gardening uh, interest at the time, but now it is. So yeah, it's, it's kind of funny how that changes, right? Can you see yourself as a, as a new gardener being interested in the bugs? <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I remember in my twenties when I, I, I picked up some delphiniums, delphiniums and some lupins from the grocers down the road. And I planted them in the garden. And I I remember going out there at night because I didn't want to spray nasty things on them. I'd go out there at night picking them off all my plants. And it's like, why am I doing this? But I got absolute satisfaction from doing it. It was bizarre. The things you look back on. I would pour myself a beer. I had a slug problem in my Connecticut garden and I would pour myself a beer and I'd pour a little bit more in another cup and I'd say, honey, I'm going out to to feed the slugs. Yes. (laughs) Some beer for me and some for them. You know, here's your last drink. I hope you enjoy it. Had to be careful to make sure I knew which hand was holding which item. (laughs) Yeah. Yuck. (laughs) Isn't that funny? Oh my gosh. So, um, I should let you go because I know you're a busy gardener, but I just wanted to end up by bringing up a mutual friend of ours who I'm constantly talking about on Into the Garden with Leslie. It should be Into the Garden with Nanny New. Julie Hart, our friend down in Launceston, Tasmania, is a mutual friend of ours. And I'm constantly seeing her like, I know she has time to garden because she has this beautiful garden and yet she's on Instagram a lot doing wonderful things. So how did you get mixed up with her? I really don't know. She, she started, she's been following me for years for quite a few years and I can't remember I think it was about 2020 around about just off the top of my head when uh, when Covid hit and everyone were in their gardens everyone were outside and because we couldn't go out and see people my my dad started sending me a message every morning just to say good morning to me and he did he does it for my brother and sister as well and every single day, religiously, he would do good morning, good morning, and I'd put good morning back to him. And I thought, why don't I do that? Why don't I do that to my followers? So now I do good morning. And obviously, she's going to bed, isn't she? So yeah, she is. I'll say good morning, okay. and she'll say good night. <laughs> <laughs> suddenly, this, this little spark happened, and we'd have these little chit-chats and conversations, and she'd comment on things in my garden and beautiful sunrises. And, and now it's just like a regular thing. I say good morning to my dad and I say good night to her. <laughs> it's, it's part of my repertoire on the, 
on a day-to-day basis. It's part of your thing. Just last week on the episode that dropped last week, uh, I totally did not ask permission. I'm like, uh-oh, hope I don't have to ask forgiveness. Julie, if you listen to this podcast, I quoted one of your little stories. She does little poems and stories that she writes on Instagram. And I and I quoted one of them. She's just, I I don't spend a lot of time on Instagram. I sort of throw something up there and run away and, and get my hands dirty in the dirt. But I I kind of make a point to figure out what she's doing because it's always so cheerful, right? Yes, she's absolutely adorable. Really, really, really love her. She's just very very positive such a real positive bright person for sure and your feed is like that too and so I have lately since I've stumbled upon you made it a point to say okay what's you know what's Jenny showing us today because is it it another beautiful sunrise are we walking through that blue door what are we doing today it's just so beautiful it's a gift so thank you so much pleasure I, I enjoy doing it it's it's good to share and it's good to give positiveness out there in, in, in what can sometimes be a negative world. And I think it's key. It's good to have that outlook. You know, my, my cup's always half full <laughs> and it's always good to share that with people. <laughs> yeah. Well, it comes through. Thank you so much for this chat and we'll be right back with into the garden with Leslie. And I'm going to talk about what you could do in your garden this week. Are you ready to create the garden of your dreams? GreatGardenPlants.com is here to help with perennials and shrubs delivered to your front door. With over 800 plants to choose from, you'll find exciting new varieties as well as old favorites. And their website makes plant shopping really easy because you can use filters to figure out things like zone and light and color and deer and stuff. And once you're ready to order, they let you select your own ship date at checkout. If you're worried about shipping plants in the mail, don't be worried. They arrive in great condition, but also they are guaranteed. As a listener of this show, you can save 10% on your first order with the code Garden with Leslie. But I just checked the website and they're writing a 15% discount. That's better math, isn't it? On deer resistant plants. So go to greatgardenplants.com and check out the goods. Hey, do you know that it's really difficult to guarantee a plant being deer proof? That's why everybody says deer resistant. I mean, there are some plants that would poison deer. But hungry deer, in my experience, will try most anything. I've seen them eat English ivy and peonies. In the last episode, I talked about plants that are actually toxic to people and deer sometimes, including the daffo freaking dill. But I swear there are silly adolescent deer that might just take a bite out of anything just to see how it goes. I'm starting to see some deer damage in my yard, and my regular listeners might know that I have a deer fence that goes around a lot of the property, but not all of it. I have some bunny damage too, but I haven't seen any bunnies tall enough to account for some of the higher nibbles. The part of my yard that I'm unable to fence off will soon be protected by my motion sensor sprinkler. Of course, I took my hoses in for the winter, but I think it's warm enough now to get them out this weekend. And Ginny, the English Springer Spaniel, and I will have to remember the booby trap that I will set when we step out early in the morning to grab the paper. The motion sensor sprinkler is a really effective tool and therefore sometimes has been a surprising shower to us, not exactly when we wanted or needed it. I hope you like the interview with Jenny Williams, just a good old garden chat, and I highly recommend that you go to her Instagram, The Laundry Garden, and have a look at the beautiful space that she was describing. I'll put a link in the show notes at lhgardens.com on the blog page. Hey, Jenny mentioned Arnie Maynard as being someone who has worked with her on design at The Laundry Garden, and as usual, I pretended like I knew who that was, but I didn't. I made a note of it, and coincidentally, like a few days later, 
I was with my daughter and she was showing me some of the Instagram accounts that she's been enjoying lately. And one of them was Arnie Maynard. And so he's a garden designer and his home, which is beautiful, is called Alti Bella. So I would recommend that Instagram feed also. What's going on in your garden right now? I hope things are popping up and making you happy. We've moved on here from early daffodils and a type called Watch Up, of which I have five or 600 growing along the stream, are in full flower. This is a delightful cultivar, Watch Up, because although it's generally a cream-colored flower, the corona and the trumpet, sometimes a pale yellow sneaks in, and it's really beautiful the way the slight differences in the colors combine. Besides that, the head of the flower doesn't bend down as much as other daffodils. It sort of looks up at you, asking you to enjoy it a bit more than the others. And Watch Up, of course, is sold by Color Blends. Color Blends is a third-generation bulb company offering top-sized flower bulbs directly to ambitious residential gardeners and landscape professionals at wholesale prices. The more you buy from this place, the more you save. And um, by the way, I just wanted to announce, I just heard word that they are coming out with their paper catalog again for next season. They had put it on hold for a year or two and then realized that so many people like to flip through it that they're putting it out there. So you can go to their website and sign up for it, colorblends.com. I'm about to stop feeding the birds, although maybe it's a little unfair because maybe they don't have all that much to turn to right now because it's still fairly early. But I hang their feeders right outside my kitchen door for maximum enjoyment. And they kind of make a mess all over the patio furniture, which I'm about to start using. So probably a better idea is to give them another round or two of feed, but hang the feeder in some trees a little bit farther away and give my kitchen porch a good cleaning. So I got to hook up the hoses. I got to give the patio furniture a wipe. What else? Oh, the lawn. The lawn is making me so happy because of my spiral. If you've seen my photographs on Instagram, this is just a very simple design that you can mow into your lawn. And it was an inspiration from Marion Boswell, who I interviewed about her book, Sustainable Garden, back in September. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back because it is so cool to hear her talking about all of her great ideas. And besides that, you know, she has a British accent and everything sounds better with a British accent, let's face it. And she's a lovely lady. So my lawn spiral is looking really fun. You know, if you have a big patch of lawn and nobody needs it to kick a soccer ball on every day, you could get creative with mowing and let some of it grow high. Or if you're not the one who's mowing the lawn, have a chat with whoever does, your landscaper or whomever, and see if they might get in touch with their creative side on the zero turn. The rest of the lawn is looking pretty healthy, but I do need to give it a final rake because we had a ton of acorns last year, a massed year. Most of them happily are now empty shells instead of oak trees growing in the wrong place but I need to tidy up a bit and sprinkle some grass seeds so we can have a fresh start to the year. Virginia bluebells, that's the native Mertensia virginica that I'm threatening, probably certainly will do as my plant of the week next time. Hyacinths, leucogium, the bright green beginnings of hack on grass, and tons and tons and tons of beautiful hellebore flowers. They're all happening. Oh, and my coral bark maple, the one called Sango Kaku, it is looking its coralist at this moment before it leaves out. So bright. Oh, and there's another little adorable daff that I thought I'd mention called White Petticoat. It's short, it's got a really pale yellow flower, and it looks like an inverted hoop skirt. Really cute. I think I mentioned last week that you have lots of choices for daffodils, if that's what's getting your attention right now. So when you shop to plant in the fall of 2023, to enjoy in the spring of 2024, keep in mind that there are so many to choose from, and you don't have to have them come out all at once. 
If yours are beginning to go over, some of my early ones are, it's really helpful to the plant if you simply snap away the deadhead so that it doesn't form seeds. Instead, all the energy from the sun will go right to its roots and help you out for a good flower next year. This is a helpful but not essential thing, so don't fuss about it. But if you feel like it, deadhead your daffodils or any other bulb that's beginning to finish up. House plants. Well, I've given mine a really good pep talk about sticking with me for the last few weeks before they escape from my care. Not long to go now. And I told them how grateful I am that they have stayed alive so far. If you're beginning to think about that change of reintroducing your house plants to the wild, then here are a couple of things to keep in mind. One is that even house plants that love full on sun need to go from the relative shade of indoors. Even if you have a south facing window, it's just not the same type of light. If you want to take that plant outside, you need to go slowly. And one could say even slower than is convenient. There are gardeners out there who get their exercise in by putting plants out and bringing them back in and putting them back out and bringing them back in and blah, blah, blah. I'm not that kind of gardener, but there's no doubt that cellularly plants just can't go from one extreme to the other quickly. They won't like it, and they could even show their disapproval of that strategy by employing their favorite disapproval strategy, which is, of course, dying. So here's my plan in case it interests you. The next fine morning when I see that we're not going to have a very cold night to follow, I'm going to turn off the heat in my plant porch. This means that they can start to get used to the 50s and then eventually the 40s at night, which they can absolutely handle. You just don't want to startle them with a really abrupt change. So I'm looking for the first night to maybe be in the mid 50s, say. I'll even start to open the windows on the porch so they get used to some wind. If we get a frost warning, I doubt I'll have to turn the heat back on, but of course I'll close the windows. You might not be lucky enough to have a place like I do where all of your plants are hanging out. And if your plants are sharing your house with you, well, I don't know about you, but I'm not particularly comfortable sitting and reading the newspaper at 50 degrees. So let me adjust the strategy so that it could work for you. If you need to get them outside, again, choose a mild morning of a day that you know will end up fairly close to the indoor temperature of your house. And the first night you're reading ahead for the prognostication shouldn't be too far off from that either. They should be able to handle like a 15 degree change over 12 hours. If you're worried about them the first night or any night soon thereafter, throw some blankets over them. And certainly do not put them in the sun. A great place to put them if you're bringing them outdoors for the first time is just cuddled up against your house in the shade, enjoying a few extra degrees of your home's ambient heat, and then you gradually expose them to more sunlight if they're the kind of plant that ultimately likes a lot of sunlight. Treat them like toddlers from whom you are trying to wean a pacifier. Going about it all at once could be disastrous, or at least very noisy in the case of toddlers. I got some big new planters, speaking of outdoor plants, for Christmas from my lovely husband, and they are big enough so that I am almost certainly going to do the strategy of not filling them all the way up the soil. Back in the 80s and 90s, when I was first starting to garden, people recommended styrofoam peanuts to fill the bottom of pots. That was so bad on so many levels. I didn't feel personally responsible that those styrofoam peanuts existed. I, I couldn't control their existence. I mean, this was a situation of like, eat your bacon, the pig is already dead. And at least they got a second use in my planters. But what a mess when you went to change them out. I used to put them in plastic bags, but somehow those decided to disintegrate along with the peanuts. So the next thing you know, when you're changing out the plants at the end of the season, you've got even tinier bits of styrofoam mixed up with soil, plant roots, and tattered plastic bags. 
no, I am not doing that anymore. But what I do now to take up that real estate that I really don't want to fill with soil is I take old black plastic pots and I sort of mangle them up or ball them up or stack them up or a combination so that water can drip down through them for drainage, but there's only about a foot of soil at the top because unless I'm planting something quite unusual, that's probably all my annual plants need. Hey, if you're starting to visit nurseries to see what's out there, make sure that you understand the temperature requirements for the plants that you're buying. If the plant is sitting indoors as you admire it and decide to take it home, chances are very good that it is not hardened off to cool spring weather. You can ask, or you can just assume no, which is probably the right assumption. Hellebores are the perfect thing to put in pots right now. And then of course, they're not very fascinating to look at over the summer, so you could just plant them in your garden afterwards. Don't be suckered into things like hothouse hydrangeas or anything like that that's looking beautiful, but that's sitting inside, unless you're willing to provide shelter for those on cold nights. It's quite a depressing look if you forget. And the last thing that I'll mention as to what is going on in my garden right now is that I'm on the verge of sowing summer annuals like zinnias, cosmos, some tomatoes, basil, and all that sort of thing. It's still a bit early, but I have a cold frame. So I'm going to start with a few experiments and I'll talk more about that in the next episode. I'm sure there'll be lots of content to tell you about, including failures. And what to listen to? Well, I recommend to you, dear listeners, episode 303 of The Joe Gardner Show. Joe Lample's guest on this episode is Mary Reynolds, who wrote a fascinating book called We Are the Ark. It was recommended to me by my friend Christy, and the ideas behind it are wonderful. I would say that Mary Reynolds has a lot in common with Marion Boswell, she of Into the Garden with Leslie, episode 78, and her book, again, is titled Sustainable Garden. Both ladies espouse being kind to the earth in your garden and loosening your horticultural grip a bit. Mary Reynolds goes as far as to ask us not to think of ourselves as gardeners, but instead guardians who are taking care of our little slices of the world, which she calls the ark. I really enjoyed the podcast episode, again, the Joe Gardner Show 303, because I actually gave the Mary Reynolds book, We Are the Ark, a try on Audible. That did not work out well for me. This is probably my own shortcoming, but I could not tolerate the sound of the reader's voice. Now, I just said that everything sounds better with a British accent, but the reader for this book, who was not the author, had a tone of voice. Let's see what adjective comes to mind. I think the best one is sanctimonious. And Mary Reynolds, the author, is telling us great things that we could do in our garden, but whoever the reader is, and of course, I don't even want to know who the reader is because what's the point of that, but whoever she is, she makes it sound like this is the most bloody, serious thing that anyone has ever talked about. And you are tragic, as tragic as your garden, if you don't do the things in the book. Oh, I really had to stop listening because I was beginning to feel bad about my garden, myself, everything. The good news is that Mary Reynolds, the author, has a lovely and light voice. And when she talks about her ideas, she comes off as someone who's got good ideas and making suggestions to people. And she also laughs a lot, which is adorable. I want to try to get her on my show. Let me know if you have any connections, you good people. Hey, thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments or corrections, please reach out to me on Instagram. I am Leslie Harris LH. My website is lhgardens.com and I always write a blog post that goes with the show. When you go to lhgardens.com, have a look at that blog and add your comments and consider buying me a coffee to help support the podcast. If you have time, could you write a review for this podcast on Apple Reviews? I would be ever so grateful. I want to thank our sponsors, Color Blends Bulbs, 
greatgardenplants.com and my friend, artist Karen Blair. And of course, Dos Amigos Landscaping. Hey, hey, if you have not listened to episode 88, the one just before this, I really hope that you do because Dos Amigos Landscaping is doing something wonderful. And that is enlisting the help of electricity and batteries instead of internal combustion engines and many, many, many decibels of gas-powered blowers and mowers to get their work done. It was a really good interview and a great adventure by this landscaping company and the owner, Matt Berry. Hey, I named this show Into the Garden with Leslie because I am really into my garden and I want to get you into yours. And that is the official end of this episode. But, 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 hang on to listen to more information about Historic Garden Week from Debbie Lewis, the president of the Garden Club of Virginia, which puts on this huge tour, and Fran Cardin, who is the state chair of the event this year. Big jobs, big jobs. Hey, we're back to the special addendum at the end of the regular show, because as I promised, we are going to be talking to two of the ladies who are making something big happen in the Commonwealth of Virginia just next month. And this is something that some of you might have attended in the in the past, but it would be a really great year to come this year because I think I've heard it said that it's the 90th year. I know a little bit of something about this event. Um, as I explained to you earlier in the show, I was on the side where all I had to do was fuss around with my garden and that was where everybody else did everything. But these two ladies, Debbie Lewis, who is the president of the Garden Club of Virginia and Fran Carden, who is the Zarina, what, what is your, what is your title? The state chair. The state chair. Fran Carden is the state chair. They're running the show. And actually, so they're my bosses right now because I'm doing my part. I, I wanted to give back. And I'm, I don't know what I am, the tri-chair lady of the one small part of it, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, big event. We want to learn more about it. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for coming. Thank you, Leslie. Thank you, Leslie. Debbie, let's start with you. What are the basics of your of of the garden club that you're being the president of, which is like, I don't know, pretty much like running a small country from what I understand it, and your job in particular. Yes, it really is an honor to serve GCB. It's an organization with an incredible history, um, advocating for the Commonwealth for over a century. My job as president is exhilarating. No two days are alike. Um, but it, what could be more rewarding than meeting and working with bright, talented, and dynamic members from across Virginia who share our passion and our mission? The Garden Club of Virginia was um, founded in 1920 when eight garden clubs came together because they realized that we together could make a difference beautifying our cities and our towns and our highways and to conserve the rich endowment of our natural resources. And through the years, a lot has changed, but not the tenets of our mission. We've stayed very true to our core values. We share the love of gardening, uh, horticulture, and artistic design. And we realize the importance of increasing the awareness of conservation and environmental issues to restore and preserve the historic public landscapes across Virginia and importantly, to lead future generations to build on this heritage. Yeah, it's really important. When I was first discovering, what the, you know, uh, I was a crazy mad gardener. A neighbor said, oh, you should join the garden club. I'm like, pretty sure I'm not doing that. That's all about like cucumber sandwiches. And I not doing that. And competing. I'm like, I, I was I, I was a very competitive person at that stage in my life. I'm like, no, I don't need more competition. I was playing very serious tennis. And I was, the, you know, the coach of a basketball team. Anyway, 
it is so much more than competitions and who has the prettiest daffodil thingamajig. It is, and the, and the money that is raised from this event, which we'll go to, into in a minute, is is put into all kinds of good stuff. So I'm really glad you mentioned how important your job is and how important the G, the GCV is. Thanks, Debbie. So Fran, tell us the basics of this event, which is, I don't know, it's probably one of the biggest events of the Garden Club of Virginia, right? It is the biggest event hosted by the Garden Club of Virginia, and we are so excited that it's the 90th year. Wow, we've been doing this a long time and doing it beautifully a long time. And thank you, Leslie, for being the tri-chair of our local Albemarle County tour, and you're doing a great job. But as you know, this is across the state, not just Albemarle County. This year for the 90th year, we have a week of beautiful homes and gardens. The first tour date is April 15th. The last tour date is April 22nd. And we have 29 tours of private homes and gardens across the state. In addition to that, we have our restoration sites, which are open, many which are open free to the public. And if there is a ticket price involved, many of those have selected to waive the ticket price for tour goers. The greatest thing is that there are 48 Garden Club of Virginia clubs that put on and host these tours. And those are comprised of 3,400 members. Wow. So you can imagine all the great logistics that go into these garden tours. After receiving many years of surveys, we keep hearing time and time again, we want more gardens. We want more gardens. So this year's tours have, of course, beautiful homes, historical homes, but half of the tours also are gardens only for true, your listeners, your true gardeners who want to tromp around, look at natives, look at designs by professional designers, by homeowners, just a myriad of gardens and be ready to enjoy the gardens and come prepared and dressed to walk throughout nature. It's going to be a great, great week. Oh, I'm so excited. And and I'm really glad to hear that about the the actual gardens because yeah, there is that sort of occasion sometimes where you're like, ooh, fancy kitchen. Mm. But that's yeah, and that's who doesn't love a fancy kitchen? But it's really <laughs> nice when you can understand what's being grown. So so Debbie, as a person who's gonna go to historic garden week, they probably you know, your goals on the day of setting, you know, of getting this all set up beautifully are like, you know, it's it's like two-sided. It's like immediate instant gratification, fun on the day. And then there's this other goal, which is more hidden, but probably more important. So tell us about those. Well, a little bit about the history of Historic Garden Week and, and what the inspiration was um, from the very beginning. And, and that dates back to 1927 when the president of the Garden Club of Virginia became aware of deteriorating trees at Monticello, some of which Jefferson planted himself. And the club came together and thought, what could we do to help this? And so they created a fundraiser, and it was a three-day fair and opened gardens and raised back then $7,000, which went to the conservation of trees at Monticello. Since 1929, the Garden Club has completed 129 projects at 52 different public spaces in the Commonwealth. It's just a storied springtime tradition. Wow. But on the day, you could be totally unaware of that and actually be the kind of, oh, shallow person like me who's just like ogling over some Virginia bluebells who, that's cool. But now but it's like two-sided, like you got your fun on the day because you're walking through these fabulous gardens. 
Meanwhile, your ticket is funding all these fabulous restoration projects. And also there's some scholarships, right? Yes. Since 1996, we've also funded two landscape architecture fellowships for graduate research to do research on historic public landscapes across Virginia. So there, that's that's not quite as much fun as the beautiful homes and gardens, but <laughs> very, very important. So we can get so much information about this entire week. And by the way, it's so cute on the website. One of the um, FAQs like, can I attend all the events for Historic Garden Week? And the answer is no, you would have to be a superhero who does time travel. You just can't do it. But there's this fabulous guidebook that sort of takes you there mentally. Tell us about the guidebook, Fran. It's so cool. Oh, the guidebook is wonderful. Produced by the Garden Club of Virginia. It has every detail about every tour, uh, beginning with, of course, beautiful photographs, descriptions of the properties, the co-chairs, and you can feel free, Leslie's a co-chair, to email the co-chair with specific questions. In addition to the homes and gardens, there are great events. There are children's activities. There are floral design uh, arrangement activities. There are uh, propagation workshops. There will be vendors, garden-focused vendors. There will be in some food trucks. There, there, you have the ability to purchase lunches. It really is a full day of fun for whichever tours you select to attend. And specifically, the guidebook, as we mentioned, has all of the details in it, but also the website, Leslie, vagardenweek.org has the guidebook on it as well. But if you're particularly interested in one or two tours and you want even more details, most of the local tours will produce a local brochure that will have even more details. So please do your homework. The guidebook is extraordinary in itself. It's a work of art and it's beautiful and it's great to read about the history of the homes. Even if you are unable to attend a tour, please find a guidebook because they really are great to read and to hear about the properties on tour. They're beautiful. They're fat. They're stubby little things full of great photographs. Even the advertisements are attractive. It's a really cool thing. And you can pick them up at local. Well, you could find out where they are on the website, right? Yes, you can. And then local garden centers and uh, gift shops in your area, their uh, grocery stores have them. They're just, they're all over. And I think everyone has seen it. This is when I wish that I was on a camera with you, Leslie, so I could hold up the guidebook. But I think <laughs> all of your listeners are very familiar with it. And if not, check that out. And then follow Instagram. It's That's another great way to hear what's going on in your area. So you may not be able to do all of the tours, Leslie, but you can certainly do two a day. That would be a fun, just challenge yourself to do two a day. Get a lot of steps in that way. All right. So Debbie, how do you buy the tickets? Fran mentioned the website. Yes. Fran mentioned the website, vagardenweek.org. And um, there's also information, as she said, in the guidebook. Uh, different tours will offer tickets the day of at their headquarters, and those are listed um, in that section of the guidebook that lists what is open um, in those communities. I encourage everyone to buy a statewide pass. My husband and I, I invited him to join me for a trip across the state, and he is really excited. We sat by the fire one night and charted our course, and I really encourage it. I think it will be a wonderful opportunity. I know last year, when I was hostessing at one of the homes in um, our community, 
a group of ladies came through from Florida and they were traveling across the state and were so excited and really appreciated the warm hospitality, the beautiful arrangements. They were over the moon with everything that they saw at Historic Garden Week. Oh, that's so cool. Um, we divided up uh, a lot of jobs. My other two chairman and I, Sarah Wilkinson and Claire Mellinger, but I'm the one who's handling the emails and I've gotten some from out of state and it's really cool. Like, well, well what day and when can I come and blah, blah, blah. So the website is really informational. And so so go to that to buy your tickets. Just for local listeners, just a word about Morvin, which is our Saturday, April 15th. You can buy tickets on the day at Morvin. So this is very concentrated information just for you local people. You can buy your ticket ahead of time for our three private homes on April 16th and they're in the North Garden area. But for Morvin, which is that University of Virginia owned property, we only sell those tickets in cash or by check on the day because if it rains, that does not actually open. So a little tidbit for you there. So Fran, a lot of people go to this year after year, but some people who might not have gone before, what should they look for? Uh, cookies is one that you should really be aware of ahead of time, right? <laughs> cookies are always a plus, right? Right, Leslie? Leslie, thanks for talking about your local tour. I really appreciate that. That's the question I was going to ask you. So thanks for highlighting your tour that is so amazingly presented in Albemarle County. So everyone says, well, what's the not to miss property? And that is the hardest question. Not to mention there's not one answer because there's so many things for so many different tourists and visitors according to what you like. Going back to the guidebook, there's sections with suggested itineraries. If you like art and architecture, if you like water views, they're broken down by itineraries that way. There's a great map which shows where your locality is and where restoration sites are in relation to that. So in addition, in the guidebook, there's special places of interest that you should see while you are in that area. Because we really encourage local tours to make the tour their own, they procure these beautiful homes and gardens, and then they create these additional spectacular, the the vendors or the demonstrations, and they really craft it. And so even in Albemarle County from year to year, tours will be different. But this year specifically, there are kids' gardens, which is really kind of cool. There are specifically native gardens, which are really great. And so we're just excited that every year, these amazing 48 clubs produce the most unique tours. So we, of course, thank them, but we also cannot say thank you, thank you, thank you enough to our homeowners who so generously open their homes to all of us to come and look. As you know, being a former opener of your beautiful garden, Leslie, you put a lot of love and attention on that, and the tour goers really appreciate it. I hope that answered your question. It did very much. The one thing that I was, it's funny, it's kind of the, the thing that I'm the least interested in, um, but they're pretty, they're pretty darn cool, is when you go inside of a home, and almost all homes are open, but not all, for instance, I did not open my home, there was nothing to see except old lacrosse prints. And yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but when you go into a home, or even walking around the outside, the people, the ladies who come and together and make these amazing floral arrangements, like I had a fire pit, and they put birch logs together. Karen Blair, the artist, put birch logs together and bought Birds of Paradise to make it look like there was a flame in the fire pit. So creative. I've seen ones that sort of mimic this fabulous painting that the owner already has. And then somebody tries to build a, and does, a floral arrangement that sort of, you know, echoes that or mimics it or, or enhances it. 
my thing is jamming a bunch of zinnias in a jar, but I am in total respect of these ladies who make these fabulous, fabulous arrangements. So people who are walking around, don't forget to, to look for those also. You're right. The floral arrangers that we have in the Garden Club of Virginia are just over the top, extraordinary, creative. Also, the arrangers are encouraged to use plants that are growing in their their gardens, not just to go out and purchase everything. Native plants, plants that are currently in their garden. So that when the visitors walk in, they say, wow, I grow that. I can use that in an arrangement. And each of the arrangements also has an information card, which says, what type of of tulip that is. We actually have a gardener in our club who grows tulips specifically for Historic Garden Week and keeps them netted away from squirrels and deer and all of those things. So there's so much information for the gardener as well as a person who's interested in homes and and floor arranging. So thank you for bringing up the floor arranging. Yeah, they're, they're pretty cool. They're pretty cool. And every year we're afraid that we won't have any flowers because... It gets warmer and warmer and, and all of the daffodils and tulips have bloomed out, but we seem to always have something. And this year we may even have peonies, which would be a special yeah, delight. We're certainly going to have peony buds, probably. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah, we're, we're worriers when we, you know, we ladies, when we put on an event like this, oh, somebody's coming to lunch. I must fuss all over the place. So you can imagine 30, 400 ladies all over the Commonwealth fussing and making it really good. So come see our fussing, right? Right. Well, thanks y'all and everybody come out and get your tickets and go to whatever part of the state you want, but especially Charlottesville and Albemarle. Mall. And, um, and thank you very much, Debbie and Fran. Thank you. Thank you, Leslie.